0: welcome to Book Solid. We're your hosts. I'm India.
1: And I'm Soraya. And today we're going to be discussing When No One is Watching by Alyssa Cole.
0: Spoiler alert. Hey, guys, just as a heads up, we will be revealing spoilers in this episode. If you haven't yet read the book or seen the show or film, this is a courteous reminder to proceed with caution. So, just jumping right in, this book. Okay, honestly, so Indy and I, we usually like to
1: save our conversations for when we're recording, just, you know, to make sure we get everything out that we want to say. This one, it was near impossible to do that. <laughs> we just talked about it for, like, an hour before we started recording, because it, there's so much to be said. Like, I think I even texted you halfway through. Yeah. Like, there's going to be a lot to unpack on this episode.
0: <laughs> yes, and... I don't know. I just want to say at the top of the episode, um, something I think that's really important. So it was written by a black woman, Alyssa Cole, as you guys know, we are both black women. Um, and so by having, I guess like our perspective as black people and just speaking of myself real quick here, like. I can't stress enough how much this is not like, yes, it is a thriller. Yes, it's fiction, but there's a lot of it that's based in reality. Mm-hmm. And I know reading it, it might just be like, oh, she's doing this for shock value or, oh, that was cringy. But like, guys, I can't stress enough. And we're going to talk about it because yes. a lot of it, there's a lot of parallels to what's ha- what's been going on this past summer, what's going on now. You know, it's very, very timely, very, very pertinent. And I, it's, yeah, it's not just for gimmicks, no. <laughs> I want to say. But yes.
1: So we're going to flip this episode around a little bit. I know we usually take it character by character and then discuss the plot along the way. This one, we feel like there's so many critical elements of the plot that I think we're going to dedicate most of the episode to, to the plot itself. And, you know, as characters come up, then we'll discuss them. But um, I guess I want to ask you your initial thoughts or even as you were reading it, how, how did you feel?
0: Yeah. Angry. No. Yeah! <laughs> Livid. Um, blood boiling. <laughs> no. <laughs> um. Well, but just, so I just, I want to say too, her writing style. And I think we were talking about this a little bit too, but like it just leaps off the page. Like mm-hmm. there are times where I laughed out loud. I couldn't help but jot down um, certain quotes. Like I know we're going to get into, but like, just the dialogue the characters are so witty and just like i don't know there were times where i'd read a whole paragraph and go back not because i wasn't paying attention but because like there were little references buried inside and just i don't know interesting things going on there but um I was angry, and it was hard to read at times. At times, I had to put it down. I know I say that every episode. I'm just dramatic too. Like I want to, I want to stress <laughs> that, guys. If you know me in real life, you know I'd be doing the most. But I actually did have to put this one down at times, and I think that's a sign of how good it was. Um, one time, or uh, I say one time, but a couple of years ago when I was in school, one of my film professors. When we were writing our scripts, somebody asked him, how do you know when your script is good? How do you you know, like, what's a sign? And he basically said, if somebody gives a crap, (laughs) like, if you write something that causes people to feel things, you have done your job as an artist. You've caused someone to connect. And I felt definitely I connected with this book.
1: Yeah, it, um... I, I, I want to second that wholly and completely. It was incredibly hard to read at parts. Like, there were sometimes, like, how am I going to get through this part? How yeah. am I going to finish it? Because I'm just, I'm angry, I'm hurt, I'm disgusted by the behavior of some of these people. And India finished it before me. And so I wanted to text her, like, every time, like, I can't believe that this has happened. Or, like, I can't move past this part. And, like, I said it audibly many times, like, oh, this is a hard one to read. And, and, I okay you know there's phrases that we say often like oh my gosh my jaw dropped or like this (laughs) and the other and usually when people say that like did their jaw actually drop (laughs) when someone's texting lol did you really laugh out loud but no when I say my jaw was dropping at parts it was literally a gape okay (laughs) like I'm sitting here reading and just smacks the concrete like I it was (laughs) yeah just (laughs) I just I'm at a loss honestly because there was just it it was a lot um there, were, everything that was said were things that needed to be said and things that needed to be addressed. And I think we kind of said this before we started recording, but I feel like the way that Alyssa Cole was able to touch on so many important topics within this yes. one book, she really like just hit home. A lot of it hit home, and I think she just did an amazing job of rolling all of these very real issues into one book. And we're gonna get into more specific examples as we talk, but
0: yeah. yeah yeah and i also wanted to add really quickly just in case i forget as we get going here but um i mean as you guys probably can tell and we both talked about it like we're very passionate about a lot of these topics so i'm gonna try and like keep my cool because um like i first was exposed to gentrification and like i started to hear about it in high school but i didn't really understood what it meant And then I got to college and I want to say it was like my second year of school. I was taking this class and we were studying gentrification in L.A. And we actually were, I I think we're supposed to take like a class field trip, field trips in college. I know, but like (laughs) um, it was a really small class and we were all going to go. But at the same time, I found out that. So my family, my dad's great uncle, so my great great uncle, we call him Uncle Dad um he lived in LA all his life my dad's from LA and he had this house in South Central that like my whole family every summer we went I love this house guys like it's literally if I could if you could bottle up the word warm that's what I would associate with this house like I could still smell it it was just just joy just joy and warm I loved it and I loved my uncle dad he was he was just super dope super cool very big Dodgers fan (laughs) I was always like uncle dad I don't watch baseball he's like. Here's a bobblehead a Dodger's bobblehead and Lakers and stuff but um, when he passed his house sold for 584 thousand dollars. Now he bought the house originally for about $34, thousand dollars. So 584 versus 34 and that was in like I want to say like 2016 and right now today actually I found out that the house is currently almost one million dollars and like from what I understand there has been remodeling but like I just for the life of me I can't understand like it just it's it's so hard for me to wrap my mind around that because like it's just a regular working class neighborhood or at least it was at the time and so the fact that like you know I just feel so connected to this because like mm-hmm. yeah I like I said like we would always go to his house and just like why do people think that they can do that like yeah. what are you gaining from this
1: exactly no and and just, like the, the personal connection that you have to this something that is so very real. And that's something that really bothers me is like when gentrification comes up and it's something that is approached multiple times in this novel of people trying to act like, well, what's so bad about mm-hmm. it? What's the problem? They're making these neighborhoods better. They're improving the quality of life for these people. And it's like, no, you're trying to improve the quality of life for a very specific group of people. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, that's definitely something that, um, and I, I mean, obviously you can't have a novel about gentrification without that coming up, but that argument of people trying to be like, well, it's a good thing. And I appreciate
0: that yeah.
1: she, and granted, you know, this was taken a step further because it is a thriller, so to mm-hmm. speak, but I, I love that she highlights so clearly what is so detrimental about it.
0: Right. Yeah, like, well, there's a new juice bar, and there's an, there's a new thrift store, even though thrift yes. stores are, uh, like, donated, like, older clothing, but it's new, and it's, it, yeah.
1: Yep, there's even a part, <laughs> there's that part where, um, I, I keep wanting to call him Kelly, um, like, Kelly from such <laughs> a fun age, I don't, it's Theo, but in <laughs> my mind, I keep thinking of him as Kelly, but um, when he asked him to go to breakfast, and he was like, oh, there's a new brunch place three blocks down where that Dominican restaurant used to be. And he says it so casually, Mm -hmm. like, oh, now we can get our our vegan steak and egg scramble is basically what he's talking to her about in that scene. I'm like, do you even realize like the magnitude of what you've just Mm -hmm. said? But like, no, you don't, you know?
0: Yeah. And just on a very base level, like what kind of person do you have to be to wake up and think, hey, I'm going to push a group of people out simply because I can, because I have the power and I have the resources. I don't care about who is there already.
1: Mm -hmm. I want to live here now. It's mine. It, it, it's just history repeating itself yep. and just it, uh, it's history repeating itself in such a way where people are now using law and as we see in the book like banking systems mm-hmm. on their side so it seems more quote organized than yep. running into you know a piece of land and killing everyone there and removing them and then staking your claim and but getting just, a holiday and getting a holiday <laughs> <laughs> But it's essentially the same thing. It's the same practice. It's deciding that suddenly this land that is not yours that you want, you're going to push the native inhabitants out. And so now you can, you know, make your dwelling there. It's it's history repeating itself.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's a good point that you made in the book and IRL in real life. You know, like she said, the banks, guys, like banks are funding this or making it so that funds aren't there. You can't get a loan to do whatever you want to do. The practice of redlining. Um, so that's why, like, so it goes from being, oh, this is unfair, like this is low key racist, to being systemic, mm-hmm. you know. So we have, like, there's literally systems in place to oppress people on a mass scale. Like, what? <laughs> it's, it's baffling.
1: It's and 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 that's another bringing it back to that argument of of the disbelief of people, like, well, that doesn't really exist. That doesn't really happen. No, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. And it's just. I'm going to go back to the word to quote organized. The mm-hmm. the racism is just more organized. It's more systemic, as yep. you we're saying. It's not, you know, as blatant. I mean, it is, but we'll get to that. But it, it's keeping people from advancing, from opportunity, and keeping them at the mercy of, like we're saying, big banks, larger corporations.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so just kind of segueing into the beginning of the story, what were your thoughts on the character of Sydney early on?
1: Um, So Sydney's going through it, yes. like going through it, and when we talk about, you know, all these elements that Alyssa Cole was really able to bring to life in the novel, I feel like anxiety is definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. I could feel her stress, I could feel her anxiety so clear like, like a lot of times when we are getting chapters for Sydney's perspective, I could feel myself feeling like tense, just you know, on behalf of reading how she's feeling and what she's going through. So I think that um, that Alyssa called an amazing job of showcasing exactly what Sydney is dealing with in this time in her life.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I had a lot of questions because I was like, I want to know, like, what's, what is going on to make Sydney feel this way? Mm Because she would allude to her mother. She alluded to her ex-husband. I will say this though. Um, from the first time someone asked Sydney about her mom and she said, Oh, she's in a nursing home, but I'll tell her you said hi or whatever that conversation went. Mm-hmm. I knew she was dead. Ooh, okay. Yeah, I don't know how picked I up on kn- that. Yeah, I don't know how I knew, but I was like, okay, I feel like her mom is dead and she's like covering for it. I didn't know like yeah. she married her <sighs> um but i just felt like she had passed and she wasn't telling anyone because i mean obviously my very limited knowledge at the beginning of the book i just assumed she didn't want people to know yet i didn't mm. know everything surrounding it
0: yeah. yeah talk about weight i mean i got the sense in the beginning like the whole saying of feeling alone in a crowded room. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Sydney's grown up in this neighborhood. She's got, like, Mr. Perkins. They call him the mayor. He's just, like, he's amazing. If this was a film, yeah, shout out to Mr. Perkins. (laughs) But, like, you know, she has, I guess you could say to an extent, like, she has the support system. But I couldn't help but feel her isolation and her loneliness as she's trying to grapple with her rapidly changing um, community. And, like it's heartbreaking, you know, like, just, you know, we talk about, like, nostalgia, I'm a very nostalgic person, like, I love my childhood shows, and I think about that stuff a lot, but, like, if you're literally living in that, and you're watching stuff just change, like, you know, how do you have an outlet for that, you know, and Mm -hmm. she has her neighbors, and, like, they understand, but they're also processing it as well, and so it's, like, this collective isolation, and I'd even say grief in a way, It, it, yeah. Yeah,
1: especially she's coming off of. We know she recently moved back from Seattle. She had a disastrous marriage. You know, we don't know the extent of what happened, but then when we do, it's like, goodness, you know, mm-hmm. he was manipulative, ab- emotionally abusive, gaslighting, he gaslighting her. Yeah. yeah, like, so she's coming off of a very, tra- I think he had her institutionalized at a point. So she's coming off of a very traumatic and emotional experience seeking the comfort and familiarity of her home Mm -hmm. of this place that she grew up of her mother her neighbors and to come back and have that place be completely different i imagine like that feeling of hopelessness of feeling lost of like where could i possibly go what Mm -hmm. could i possibly do because there is nowhere that i feel comfortable safe at peace like she lost her mom like it just cindy's going through it yeah
0: and I couldn't help but draw parallels. One of my favorite movies of all time is Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. Mm-hmm. And without spoiling that film too much, Herb, I'll just say like the sense of... So she gets her sights set on doing this tour for their block party because she does a tour at the beginning of the book and it's this very gentrified, uh, I'm just going to say scary for lack of a better term, like <laughs> the language in that tour. Yes. Um. So... We have that in the beginning of the book. And by the end of the book, things have exploded. And they've just evolved into such a big situation that the tour is an afterthought. And in the film do the right thing. Similarly, things kind of build up that way, that tension.
1: Yeah, let's talk about that tour. Because I got (laughs) mad beef. So first of all, um, where do we even begin? I think my biggest complaint with the tour, so... You know, Zephyr, or whatever her name is, is the, to- or the um, person hosting it. And she's giving all these facts. They're not really about the neighborhood. They're about, you know, people who took this land years and years ago. Or they're very, like, surface-level facts. So, mm-hmm. obviously, Sydney, having grown up there her entire life, is chiming in at certain parts. Like, well, actually, you know, the person who lives there now, what did she say was, like, the first female like software engineer or something like that like the first black female software engineer and like no one's amused by that fact Mm -hmm. and then sydney says something else and basically the the tour guide pipes up and is like i appreciate the bonus information but this tour is about historically important people and the emphasis is on important not historically, because, you know, those are the facts, quote, that she's trying to give, and, you know, they're trying to talk about the old history of the place, this, that, and the other. So if that was really the point, and she would say said this is about historically, important didn't even have to be there, mm-hmm. historic, which there was a lot of Black history into this, or in this neighborhood, so for her to even say historic would be incorrect. But for her to put the emphasis on important and what Sydney is bringing up are facts about the Black community. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, so you're telling us right there how you feel about Black people, about the people who are living in this neighborhood. The very important and very real facts are not important enough for you mm-hmm. and for this tour. Oh, that made my blood boil.
0: Yeah. Like, it would be, it would be equivalent to going to an HBCU and being like, So let's talk about the slave plantation and like the slave masters and like, what is wrong with you? Why do you have no regard for like, it was just, it was incredibly insensitive Mm -hmm. and just weird. And to be honest, I've like, I've (laughs) okay. So as you guys know, we used to work together and we've had to give tours before and like, I know what it's like being a tour guide and someone like there, there have been times when I was giving a tour and someone asked me something that I promise you, I didn't have any inkling of an answer to. And I understand that can be an awkward situation, but in the book, the tour guide was getting angry and low key combative with Sydney. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, pause. If someone is trying to correct you or offering new information, that's, that's not a good look. To yeah, be defensive. To just
1: shut them down yeah. and tell them that her facts are not important enough. Like, it, it mm-hmm. just... It's so angering.
0: Right. And so we start off there. Enter Theo and Kim, a.k.a. Sim- ponytail, <laughs> ponytail Lululemon. <laughs> that description. I mean, with three... what? What is that? Two words, three words. Perfectly sums up Kim yeah, DeVries. Need, need
1: we say more?
0: Yes. And... I just their whole relationship is really fascinating to me
1: yeah I did not I didn't get it I guess like because we get the first chapter from Theo's perspective and he's talking about how he lives upstairs Kim's downstairs I'm like are they not a couple Mm -hmm. then the relationship's on the rocks and I'm like break up yeah (laughs) like it was just so strange to me that they're living in this same place but they're like not even acknowledging each other and you know we find like we know Theo can't leave because he has stake in this place and like no money to his name, and he is unemployed. So he's like, I physically cannot leave because I have nowhere else to go. Mm -hmm. Kim, because of her pride and her arrogance and her entitlement, we know she's not going to leave. So yeah, it is very interesting that they find themselves in this situation where they're like, not together, but they're not broken up and they're living together. Yeah, it
0: was just... (laughs) Also, I'm sorry, I have to say this and I'm gonna I'm gonna annoy you, Soraya probably because I've told you I've, I've brought this up to you numerous times just over the last uh, couple of months, I guess, but um, that show you on Netflix, season one <laughs> Beck, <laughs> She's living in New York. Um, I believe in the brownstone similarly on the you know first floor. No types of blinds, no types of curtains, you, no nothing.
1: Y'all, when I say I could have a whole podcast dedicated <laughs> to why I did not like the show You, I mean it.
0: <laughs> you... I, I've got mixed feelings. I will say the second season's depiction of L.A. was just, that was, was a treat. Crazy.
1: That was the only good part. <laughs> I, I was cackling because um I worked in L.A. for quite a while and I hated it. <laughs> I don't like, like L.A. is cool or whatever to pop into for the day, but working there, living there, not for me. And so, yeah, a lot of those things from that first, or the second season of you had me cracking up because I was like, mm, that's appropriate.
0: Right. I just um that show is a lot. But one thing that I could like I can't get the image out of my head. It's burned in and seared in forever. And anyone who's ever watched you, I'm gonna ask you about it because I can't stop thinking about it. And Beck, she did not have blinds, like and she was, you know, living her doing the most, walking yeah. around naked. <laughs>
1: A like, trip to Pleasure Town, like, windows, like, come just, on.
0: Yeah, broad daylight, right? And so, from what I understand, that's something. So, Sydney uh, is directly across from Kim and Theo, and she calls that out. She's like, they don't have, like, I could see directly into their entire place. Yeah. And I'm just like, is that a thing? Is that real? I want to know. And I already know the answer because in college dorming, I did see this a lot, like, blinds open. And I'm also just paranoid person in general. Like, you know, everyone, for the most part, probably knows this, but, like, at nighttime, there's that whole, like, I don't know if it's an optical illusion. It's not, but, like...
1: The spotlight. Yeah, If you have your lights on inside and it's dark outside, you may as well be on, gl- on display at a museum because <laughs> everyone and their mother's
0: best friend can see what you are doing. They can see you, but you can't see them, and yep. that drives me insane. Just no, just no. Like, yeah, so they... Yeah, I, I can't, I can't stop thinking about that, so... But that was interesting in a cool kind of like um tool or device used in the story because kind of like i know it's it's on the cover of the book but rear window is referenced and yeah it's very interesting because you could see in and so they're trying to learn stuff about each other they're new neighbors and they each have their own perceptions based off of that sydney from what i understand it has blinds on her windows but she's outside on her porch a lot so we got Theo watching her trying to gather interest. Like, that was a whole interesting moment to read about.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I guess to kind of see the preconceived notions they had about each other and then how they were uh, correct or incorrect once they finally got to know each other.
0: Yeah. And them getting to know each other.
1: <laughs> yeah. <sighs> I know you have some strong feelings about this because, like, what we said in the... Like, before we started. Mm-hmm. And I guess, like, what I'll say is... I, I never doubted the feelings that Theo had for Sydney. Mm-hmm. Like, because at first I was like, I don't know how to feel about him. Like, that's why I keep wanting to call him Kelly. Like, at such a <laughs> funny age. At first, like, I think we thought Kelly was going to be cool. Mm-hmm. And then he was absolutely not. Uh, He was a fetishizer. And so, yes. you know, especially like Kim being the way she is with Theo being with Kim, I was like, hmm. I don't know how, like, I'm going to feel about Theo. I do think he really likes Sydney. I didn't think he was going to, like, stab her in the back or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I feel like Sydney, I mean, I guess it changed towards the end of the book. But I feel like the only interest she had in him was, like, mildly physical. It didn't seem like there was anything deeper than that. Mm -hmm. And then I guess, like, what they went through brought them together. I I guess I'm not mad at them, like, ultimately getting together. And we'll talk more about Theo after (laughs) you share.
0: Yeah. So here's the thing. Like, there is a point in the book where I was reading, close the book, I'd say like a quarter to midway in where I'm like, these two people have zero chemistry. There's absolutely no chemistry. I can't even begin to fathom an inkling of them having a successful relationship because it's very clear. Like, and... Like, it was hard to read some of their interactions just because I could feel Sydney's obvious and apparent discomfort. And then I could also see Theo's kind of disregard for that. And he, like, like you said, like, I don't doubt that he didn't, like, I could tell he liked her. He right. genuinely liked her. But that's not enough for a relationship, one person to like one person. We all know unrequited love exists. <laughs> um, But I will say I did have a change of heart as we went on. And I was living for their Bonnie and Clyde moment at the yeah. end.
1: <laughs> that was like, and we'll get into this, I guess, a little bit more. But my biggest beef with Theo, and I guess there was a lot of self-reflection on his part as the story went on. Because I would say he was very kind of ignorant and naive when mm-hmm. the book started about what was happening in their neighborhood and I'm not talking about like the crazy stuff but just the gentrification aspect of it of what this black community was going through you know with the influx of people moving into their neighborhood Mm -hmm. he did self-reflect but my biggest problem with him was he meant well but meaning well isn't good enough Mm -hmm. and so like there was really no education on his part there was like Oh, like, you know, I'm not racist and here's my BLM shirt. I'm like, yeah, this should show you I'm down for the cause. But I'm like, but you're with someone like Kim. Right. Like you can't excuse her behavior. And there's even a part like when he, uh, after the town hall meeting or he comes home and Josie, Kim, and I can't remember Josie's husband, Terry. Yeah. They're like getting all paranoid and accusing the neighborhood of conspiring against them. Mm -hmm. And Kim says something like, there's just so few of us here, (laughs) meaning white people. And... Kelly or Kelly, see there I go. Theo (laughs) in his head was like, "Oh well, she's not like that." Like meaning racist. Mm -hmm. He was like, "Oh well, she's not that." And I think he even mentions like the Michelle Obama Mm -hmm. poster or something in that part. Yeah. And I'm like, say the word racist. It's not Mm -hmm. a bad word. If someone is racist, they are racist. So even in his head, be like, "Well, she's not that." Like. I know she has an attitude problem sometimes. And I'm like, she is racist. And say it. You know, like the fact that he couldn't even say it in his head was like, okay. And I I honestly can't remember if this was a part in the book where they mentioned the Michelle Obama thing. So if it's not, like, I apologize. But even so, that doesn't mean she's not racist. Right. And it brings me back to my whole point. We've talked about this before. It really bothers me, people who are willing to suspend their, their racism, or I wouldn't even say suspend it, but maybe overlook it for what like special Mm cases what they deem special cases when a black person has proven themselves like worthy in their eyes Mm -hmm. if that makes sense like um you know if someone is an amazing athlete or an incredible politician or spokesperson or just you know when they're like oh well you know michelle obama is different or like (laughs) so and so is different than other black people like that's that backhanded compliment that racist people try to use Mm -hmm. and you know, I had wanted to mention this at a point, maybe it's, I don't know if it's the best part to mention it here, but that's something that really bothers me. And what we've seen with um, BLM and Black athletes. Mm -hmm. So people getting upset with Black athletes for speaking up on BLM issues and for kneeling during the national anthem and be like well that's not what their job is and they're athletes they should stick to what they know as if being black is not a part of their everyday life right it's like how funny that you don't mind black people when you're profiting off of them (laughs) when you know they're bringing you your entertainment and your sports suddenly oh it's fine but then the second they like remind you that they are a black person fighting for equality then you have a problem
0: right I literally, that whole entire statement, I couldn't have said that better. It's so interesting to me too, how BLM has become this I don't know, it's, it's political. Yeah. Thing. And like, wh- let's break this down BLM, Black Lives Matter, a statement, not, it's just a statement, right? So, why is that offensive? And like, like you said, with Black athletes and celebrities, politicians, like, Unfortunately, our existence is often politicized. We are dealing with systemic racism in this country. Let's not forget about 400 years ago, what was going on. And so, like, it's... Unfortunately, we can't just separate. It's not just a separate thing. Like, my Blackness follows me everywhere. It follows me everywhere. At a job interview, my Blackness is there. At the gas station pump, guess what? My Blackness is there. When I'm thinking about what I'm cooking for dinner, walking through Target, guess what? My Blackness is there.
1: And I shouldn't have to... We should not have to prove ourselves... Prove, I'm putting quotes around. To... Be taken seriously. Right. Or to feel like, okay, well, like they're different. Mm -hmm. So because you know, they're incredibly intelligent or they have this incredible gift. Like, do people do non people of color have to walk around proving themselves? Exactly.
0: And I think that's a terrible misconception that unfortunately, um And honestly, I think I've been there when I was probably in middle school. As Black people, we've internalized this idea that if we present a certain way, we can kind of curb off some of that racism. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is, no, you can't, unfortunately. And I thought
1: that's a defense mechanism. It is.
0: Yeah, definitely. And last night, I was actually listening to Black Chick Lit podcast. And they were interviewing the author, Alyssa Cole. And they had this fascinating moment. And I want to get your opinion on it because... I literally never thought of this like this ever in my whole life and so this was like breakthrough moment for me but we, they were talking about microaggressions and Alyssa cole was talking about i believe is when she was living in new york um she was dealing with something i've dealt with way more times than i cared to even count which is when you're passing a white woman and they move their purse to the other side kind of like insinuating that you're just gonna wildly break out and steal and yeah, yeah. so that happened to her and she started to reflect on what was I wearing at the time. And she was talking about how her fashion has kind of changed. At the time, she was into, like, leather jackets and stuff. But then she thought, like, it happened to her one time, and she was wearing heels. And I think a dress. But she was wearing heels. And she's like, she knows good and well. I am i can't, like, it, it's impractical to steal while you're wearing heels. <laughs> but then she said this, which is really fascinating. It wasn't about whether or not she was an actual threat, it was a power move. It was saying, and then the host kind of expounded upon that. It was saying, let me take her down to her level. She's wearing a dress. She's wearing heels. She's feeling herself. She thinks she looks good. Let me remind her with this subtle act of racism, this microaggression where her place is.
1: That is so interesting. And it brings, it reminds me of that moment in the book where after the bodega is taken over by whatever Tony, whoever his name is. Mm-hmm. um, When Sydney goes to pay, she goes there to get, um, I can't remember what they went for, soda a drink yeah. or something.
0: And she gets the kombucha.
1: Yeah. He assumes she's looking for alcohol or maybe she was going for wine. I cannot. Oh, remember. Oh yeah. And she, it ends up being kombucha in that section. He's like, oh, we don't sell 40s. Mm, <laughs> issue one. Then she gets to the counter to pay for her kombucha and he's like, oh, this isn't covered by wick jaw drop again issue number two and so then she's like you know not that there's anything wrong with either of those things Is exactly what she says but why are you making assumptions about my financial status mm-hmm. or my drinking habits mm-hmm. and so then um she pays with a 20 he said he makes this big show of like checking if it's counterfeit and then he refuses to give her her change like her total came out to five dollars and he gives her a five back and she basically is like, um, I paid you with a 20. You made a huge show of making sure it wasn't real. Like, where's my $10? Mm-hmm. I should be getting 15 back. And he was like, basically, he says to her, like, well, who's going to believe you? If it's if a cop shows up here and it's your word against mine, who's going to believe that you actually gave me a 20? And it's a power move, mm-hmm. exactly like what you're saying in that moment, because what is she supposed to do? Mm-hmm. She knows that he's right. He's a white man. They're going to most likely believe him. And even if they didn't, like, she doesn't want the cops coming there and turning it into this big thing. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, when you said the phrase power move, that's exactly the scene in the book that it made me think of, because that's precisely what he was doing, was right. making his presence known and showing her exactly the place, quote, that he believed she should be.
0: Right. And it's just it's it's baffling to me because like in my own experiences, um, I I haven't experienced that 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 scene was ooh, I forgot about that one actually but it's just like it always happens when I'm li- quite literally just minding my business and in real life, like I yes I am dramatic when I'm talking to friends and family but I'm low-key an introvert like I don't like unnecessary attention it frightens me quite quite frankly I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> like don't you <laughs> so, don't talk to yeah, me yeah <laughs> I don't no, no 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 don't draw attention to me like I'm trying to just be in and out right so like when these things happen like I've had people um white people typically or non-black people cross the street when I'm walking or lock their car doors um I used to be a custodian at a predominantly white wealthy country club and I'll never forget this. I was walking down the stairs and this woman was walking up the stairs and I was carrying my supplies. So I'm wearing gloves, I had a bucket with my squeegee and like, I'm, I'm just, I have my equipment cause I'm at work and she sees me and she moves her purse to her other side. And I, I'm not a morning person. That shift was a sunrise shift. I got in at four or 5 AM. I was like approaching the end of the shift. And I just let out a cackle, just a frustration. I looked at her like, are you for real right now? What? I'm in You Look at my yeah, the emblem on I'm, my shirt.
1: You think I'm in uniform <laughs> with my equipment, going to snatch your purse in the stairwell
0: and run away. Like seriously. Like to do what? <laughs> to, to do what? And I just, you know, and again, it's this idea of a power move. And I think that's so interesting because it's true. I don't think she really thought I was a threat. I think she did that in, the mom, in that moment to remind me like, hey, like you work for me in this moment, you know, like the, and it's just like, that sucks, dude. That really sucks. Cause like, like I was minding my business. I was like, okay, I'm getting off of work. What am I going to do today? This is pre-COVID. This is years ago. So I'm like, let me, let me see if my friend's busy or not. We can hang out. Da da da, da. Like that's where my mind was. I'm not worried about your freaking purse, dude. Mm-hmm. And so for her to do that, I was just like, wow okay okay like it's always like that too like and very quickly instantly I'm reminded of I mean I, I don't have the luxury to forget
1: but it's like you slip into sometimes I feel like you you slip into like a
0: like a comfort a, yeah
1: it's like a comfort or you're not as blatantly aware sure as you were after that happened but you know you fall into like okay i'm not thinking about that yeah
0: just living yeah
1: and so i can't like that's just so jarring to them be like oh no this is still something that follows me everywhere and this Mm -hmm. is what people think about me regardless of how i present myself regardless of how well i speak regardless of how polite i am it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter exactly
0: and you know there's also kind of similarly in the book that moment when um sydney this is before sydney and theo become friends and stuff but they're in the store theo and kim and kim i think she cuts sydney and they get into like an argument but sydney like she she doesn't really care like she's trying to leave yeah and um kim starts getting hysterical and in that same argument, she threatens to call the police.
1: Yes. And Ke- uh, not Kelly. Goodness, Theo. <laughs> Theo even talks about like the smug smile that she gets on her face when she says that. Like she just like, you know, played her trump card or whatever, mm-hmm. however the phrase goes. Because she knew what is Sydney going to say in that moment. Right. Because she knows as a white woman, again, if the cops show up, it's over for Sydney. Right.
0: Right. And we saw this literally happen, though. This is what I was saying at the top of the episode about, like, yes, this is, a, this is fiction, this is a thriller, but there's so many parallels that, you know, this book is, honestly, it's an educational tool, even more so than just being, you know, reading. Because, like, with the Amy Cooper situation and the birdwatching situation with the man in the park and um, Amy Cooper was not following the rules, so he reminded her of the rules and she said, I'm going to call the cops on you. And so in that moment, and this was, like, also... I mean, the entire nation was protesting police brutality. Like, she literally was trying to weaponize her whiteness in the sense that she knew that if I call the police, there's a chance they could even pull out their gun and intimidate this black man. For what? Because she didn't have her dog on a leash? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, where do you get this sense of entitlement that you can do whatever you want? And I think she even said um when she was apologizing because there's always the there's always the apology video i viewed the police as my personal protection system and i'm like wow wow must be nice. that must be nice because when i'm driving on the freeway not doing anything wrong i'm on alert i'm yeah. as a black person like and that's something just in my life i've spoken to black friends and family like i don't have that same experience if you're not part of a
1: marginalized group you don't understand what that feels like to mm. know that this system that is supposed to be set up to protect and serve doesn't you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying or it only does for a specific group of people and so there's that part where Theo um when they're first breaking into the hospital after like they caused the blackout so it's Sydney and Theo they're going in through the like what you call it the bodega doors that leads like the storage whatever I can't yeah. remember but yeah so they're going through and Theo thinks something in his head of like so this is what it feels like to know I can't call the police or so, mm. something along those lines. And so that's what I'm talking about. is like this journey that Theo kind of goes on throughout the book of, because like I said before, he was very kind of naive at the beginning. And he really starts to have a better understanding of what's going on, of what the community is going through. Because I don't mm-hmm. even want to say what they're feeling because he's like never going to know what they're feeling firsthand but just that statement it really yeah. showed how much he had learned and realized of knowing like the cops are not going to be on their side in this situation right. because they were part of the problem it was right. a police officer who showed up in Sydney's house and tried to kill her mm-hmm. for this fair and tech deal so yeah
0: yeah Alyssa cole does not miss like she does not miss. the nuance <laughs> the details like when he said that and that's an interesting point you bring up with theo because um yes he's well-meaning and you know yes he clearly wants to learn like he goes to the meetings he wants to be a part of the block party he wants to help sydney he interacts with his neighbors he's not always on the he's not always afraid i think you were saying this before we started recording but like kim's little comments about the neighbors like (sighs) Like, you chose to move here. you were Nobody made you.
1: Yes, you could have picked anywhere <laughs> in this country, in the world, probably, to live. You chose to come to this particular community. And then you have the audacity to complain that it's not how you want it.
0: hmm And I think there's one part where there's, like, some Black children and they're they're getting ready to hang out and she I, I think I'm pretty sure that's when she's complaining about the loudness but then you could just see the parallels because Theo knew their names like I think one kid's name was Preston or something oh yeah so he's, he's making an effort but then and like you like you said by being in a relationship with Kim by moving in with her you're enabling this behavior yes yeah,
1: so you're passively accepting it right like especially because even on the tour when you know when Sydney was bringing up like oh, these are other facts that you're not, you know, including in this, in this tour. Theo did try to like say something to encourage her to keep speaking. Mm -hmm. But then the tour guide shut it down. And then even Kim was like, stop interrupting the tour, Theo. And Theo (laughs) didn't say anything after that. Right. So like you're complicit.
0: Right. And there's also some own like, so he, you know, he's trying that we can see, but I think internally, so he comes from a, I guess, kind of lower income background His mom was in and out of a lot of abusive relationships that definitely had an impact on him. His dad was involved in some just some shady dealings, I guess you could say. He kind of went into business as he got older with his dad, was dealing with shady stuff. And so, yes, he comes from a, I guess, like a struggling working class background. And that definitely kind of colors his opinion and perspective, but he's still a white man in America.
1: I'm so glad you said that. I literally, I have my book open to a page and a quote. So I was reading my notes and I was like, I, I wanted to touch on this is I feel like she did such an amazing job. So uh, I feel like, you know, people always say this, but especially with what happened this summer with, you know, the wave of BLM protests and things like that. A lot of people, when you try to bring up the concept of white privilege, people get defensive mm-hmm. because like, well, I'm not wealthy. So I'm not benefiting from this privilege just because I'm white. And it's mm-hmm. like, but you are. Yeah. And so I feel like Alyssa Cole did an amazing job of integrating that into the story. Cause I could tell that, and I wrote this down that with Theo, the book touches on the idea of being poor and how that does not eliminate your white privilege. Mm -hmm. Cause he's always looking at Kim through the lens of everything that's available to her because she has money. Mm -hmm. But that scene, when they go to the church, Theo and Sydney was the first time he realized things that are available to him. And so he even says I'd only thought about how safe or he said in all the times I've moved in New York, I'd only thought about how safe the area was for me, not what my presence meant for people in the neighborhood, not about what advantages I had that they didn't. Mm. I was poor too after all, even though I had figured out how not to be for a little while, at least. So like, he's talking about like even just being white affords him certain luxuries Mm -hmm. when the cops are out there patrolling the neighborhoods like they start doing towards the end of the book they're not harassing him Mm -hmm. even when things pop off with the blackout he knows he even has a thought of i could walk away right now and the cops would would think I'm a part of this and would leave me alone while they're out here, like, killing the people in this community. And so I just think that was a really great way to highlight that because it's not about, like, white privilege doesn't mean wealth. It means opportunity. Right. Even if you are poor and white, you still have certain opportunities available to you that Black people, people of color in this country simply do not.
0: Right. And I think, you know, we're born, right? Like, you don't have any say in how you appear. But you do have to acknowledge what that means in this country. And so, like, even just the fact that his whole job situation, how he lied his way to the top and yeah. then got caught, but he was like, I was still able to do that. And, like, he's relatively fine. He didn't go to jail. I he was going to say,
1: people of color have gone to jail for less. He mm-hmm. should have been in jail for that. Yeah. But no, all I did was blacklist him in that company and he, can, he just can't work there anymore.
0: So he married Rich and move on. Yeah, <laughs> you know? like,
1: that's what I'm saying. It's like, he's still even the consequences, like you have people, innocent people sitting in jail right now when he committed actual, I I, I can't remember, I'm pretty sure it was a felony.
0: Yeah, like a series of white collar crimes. Yeah, and and scot-free. And he was stealing. I I just remember that. Yeah, he was, yeah, yes. So yeah, Theo was really just a carefully written, crafted character that I think there's so many learning points. But with Theo, I definitely had beef with it kept coming up and like i was like okay i'm not gonna talk about it but he kept saying it and he's like well sydney has this lovely brownstone and the community garden that she got from her mom like she has a garden in the house she has a garden in the house i'm like theo you guys are not on the same playing field you are not okay and little does he know which he doesn't because he's over there assuming watching through his windows with no blinds (laughs) um So she's actually going through a lot. She's struggling to keep the house afloat because as we find out, her mom passed away. She physically buried her mom herself, as we are as was saying. And so like he doesn't know that. Like she's every day she's getting bills in the mail that she's like, I don't know how I'm gonna pay all this. She's avoiding Bill collectors on the phone. He doesn't know. He just sees something, assumes, and thinks he can say that. And even if she did, she's still a black woman. She's still going to get microaggressions from your girlfriend or ex-girlfriend, Kim. She's still going to be dealing with police harassment. Like, she's still a woman. So the Uber situation, terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And so I'm like, Theo, just can it. Please, open up a book. (laughs) (laughs) And there's so many little
1: things that Alyssa Cole put in here that I just wanted to talk about. Because I just feel like I was reading certain parts and I was like, just wow. Just wow, wow, wow. So there's a part where um, Sydney is in her backyard and Josie, you know, one of the people who are part of this whole gentrification, I don't even know what to call it. Um,
0: yeah.
1: We're going to call it mass murder because that's basically yes. what's happening. Is there this these people are coming in and stealing the black people from the neighborhood and using them for research and killing them. And so Josie, who was a part of this is gardening. She's with her son and her son doesn't know what fertilizer is. And so she's like, do you know what it is? And he's like, no. And she's like, it's shit, sweetie. Sorry. I know we don't usually curse, but this is what the book says. you y'all. <laughs> um, And so Josie, it says, Josie laughs and says, sometimes you have soil that isn't good for growing things in anymore. It needs to become fertile again. So you cover it with the shit and then you wait. You let the shit do the work. Then you come in and plant your crops. My grandfather taught me that and his grandfather taught him that. When I read that, because, you know, it's a metaphor for exactly what they're doing to this neighborhood. Mm -hmm. They have decided that the soil, this neighborhood isn't good anymore because it's like a flourishing black community And she said, you cover with the shit and then you wait. This was exactly what they're going to do. They're coming in. They're stealing these people from their homes in the dead of night. They are completely disrupting this community so that they can then come in and plant their crops. Mm -hmm. So I just thought the way she worded that and that whole little scene was chilling.
0: Yeah. And I think it's also kind of reiterated. I forget if it's Paulette or Pauline, but Miss Candace looks over a group of elderly Black citizens and... Someone says at that part in the book, they all they do is break. They break and then they build, mm-hmm. and so I feel like that's the the same thing. Like, or they assume something was broken so that they can build. And it's like, who are you to even say that? Yeah. Like, and she's teaching her kid this. He's like four or five.
1: Yes, and there was another part too. So the family that took Mister Perkins' house when they're moving in, Theo and Sydney are out there talking to them, and the wife. I don't know her name of this new couple. She's like, Charlie, go make sure the movers don't break that. It's been in my family for years, and he just dropped it without a second thought. And it says she glances at Charlie and his wife as they stand next to a giant carved wood African statue that the movers are about to take upstairs. And that's what she was talking about them breaking. And I feel like that was a callback to slavery, to Mm -hmm. when, you know, white families owned black slaves and they passed them down for generations and generations. And so for her saying like oh, treat this thing with care because it belongs to me. And then, of course, it happens to be an African wood statue. Like, I just feel like that's the parallel that Cindy was making there. Mm-hmm. Like, her complete disregard for everyone in this neighborhood. But she cares about this because she has ownership of right. this. Yeah. Does yeah. that make sense what I'm trying yes, to say? Yes,
0: absolutely. Viewing Black people as capital, as yes, something I can you. own. And, like, we're not your property. Yeah. That's so weird. Like, <laughs> yes. Um. I just, I feel like I... It, <laughs> In, like, two seconds of speaking, I took out the meaning for what you were saying, but... No, yeah. I
1: know. I, yeah, it's it, it was just that scene to me. It just it just straight up reminded me of slave ownership. I'm Absolutely. i just saying, be careful with that. It's been in my family for years.
0: Yeah. Kind of switching gears a little bit, something I wanted to bring up with... Um, So you're kind of touching on this in the beginning. So it's pretty clear Sydney is dealing with anxiety as things are changing, as she's very isolated and alone. Um, But it's also in the beginning, I forget exactly which part, but we find out that she has depression. I think that definitely speaks to a lot of her actions because at times, especially in her interactions with Theo... I was like, okay, it's very clear you don't like him. Like, why are you even entertaining him? Just call it off. Say, I don't need a research assistant. Um, and I will say, I think there's a certain part in the book where since they were both by themselves, they were pretty much perfect for each other. Like, I felt like they both needed each other mm-hmm. and they were open to it. And so I I can understand the relationship working later on. So there's a part in the book where Miss Candace gives her a plate of food And it keeps coming up again and again. All the other characters comment on how tired Sydney looks and how she looks like she's like maybe not taking care of herself, kind of going through it. And I think that was so just it spoke to like that family aspect of their community Mm -hmm. because like, you know, and Sydney, of course, she's like, no, it's okay. Like I have leftovers. I don't need it. And she's like, take it. Like I have plenty of food. And Sydney's talking about how good the food smells and it's fresh and it's this plate just waiting for her. And I was like, that's so interesting because I think a lot of times when loved ones have or people in their lives with depression, and I can attest to this, like, they meaning well will do something like, how are you feeling? How are you doing? And like, while again, that's well-intentioned, sometimes like when you have depression, you're not going to just be like, here's everything I'm going through. You know, sometimes it's hard to communicate that. But in that moment, Miss Candice was like, well, I can be present in another way. Like I can see visibly she's tired. Like I haven't seen her in a while. Let me get dinner. Let me clear dinner off her plate. She she, don't, she doesn't have to worry about dinner. And um, I almost said Kelly. Uh, Theo also does this later in the book where I think they're, this is when things start to pick up, but he goes and he gets breakfast and it's like some pastries or something. And it's just like, again, like he's, okay, here's breakfast. And it doesn't always have to be food, but it's just like, being present in other ways. Yeah,
1: a way of showing I'm thinking about you.
0: They're checking on you and they're trying to make sure you're okay. It doesn't always have to be like food or items or something, you know, spending money. But it's just like, you know, I care about this person. I love this person. What can I do to make their life easier? Yeah. And that's, I don't know. I, I really like that. I like that both Miss Candace and Theo did that. I wanted
1: to ask you, something I was a little unclear on. So did Drea really betray her or no?
0: Oh, okay. See, so yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I feel like she did. Okay. Because she, I only say that because of the whole receipt thing. I don't know if it was planted. So. Yeah,
1: that's what I was like. Did, was it planned, or did Drea not know that this company was going to rip her off? Like I had, I was confused. So I wanted to get your feedback.
0: I feel like Drea got played and then murdered. Mm-hmm. And I, I think she really did love Sydney and Sydney's mom, but... I think she was. I think much like Sydney's mom got kind of sold this false dream with the house and got um, stuck in this real estate battle. Drea did, but I'm just kind of like Drea. How could you do that though? Yeah. You know, I think it was 50k she got yeah. for recruiting Sydney's mom to sell her house, and I'm like, oh god. Yeah.
1: I'm like, did she not know the fine print that it was gonna end up being like this terrible deal and that? You know, Sydney's mom was gonna lose absolutely everything, mm-hmm. and so it's like if she did, I I now understand. I mean, they were friends, so there's like a loyalty and a compassion there. Mm-hmm. But now I like really understand the way she was trying to help Sydney so much through everything, probably because there's immense an immense amount of guilt.
0: Right. So, yeah. Oh, that's a good point. That's true. Yeah, I, we were talking about this off air, but before, so there's a part in the book around the middle where Sydney can't reach Drea and again like Drea has been someone in Sydney's life where she can really kind of lean on as she's dealing with depression and I'm assuming anxiety as well Um, but Drea has communicated like I can't take everything on maybe you should seek out therapy and talk to someone and Sydney has her apprehensions because of what happened in her previous marriage where she was forced to be in that institution and everything that happened with that and so I was kind of frustrated with Drea until we found out why she wasn't responding. Because I think, you know, it's while it's important to set those boundaries, she would kind of fall back on it. So, like, she would be like, okay, yeah, like, please don't pour all this on me. I'm at work right now. But then they would hang out and she would, like, yeah. talk to her or she would, like, when they were dealing with Theo, have her back. And they're friends and I get it. But I think it's very important that, like, clear boundaries are set.
1: And that's another thing, too. So when we say, like, Alyssa Cole took on so many things in this book and, like, just portrayed them in such a real way. And so particularly um, there was a part, because we know, like we said, that Sydney is dealing with anxiety. And that moment where she thinks... Um, like Dre is ignoring her because like Sydney's become too much for her. Mm -hmm. Anybody who's ever dealt with anxiety knows that feeling, Mm -hmm. you know, especially when you have one person who you tend to lean on or come to, you always have this fear of like, one day it's going to be too much for them or they're going to be tired of me or they're not going to want to deal with me anymore. So, like, that whole scene where she's like, you know, I finally crossed the line and Dre is done with me and she hates me. And, like, when she saw she was typing and then a message never came, Mm -hmm. like, building up that anxiety there, it was so realistic and believable. And I feel like so many of us have felt that way before.
0: Right. Like, she just – she doesn't miss, guys. Alyssa (laughs) Cole does not miss. So, kind of moving into the ending, there was a part when – so – The police have arrived. It's supposed to be the block party, and they're literally just like attacking the entire neighborhood. Meanwhile, we know Kim and friends and father are at the abandoned hospital doing literal human experimentation, and that's where Theo and Sydney go to. And so when they're there, it's revealed Kavan. He was somebody who lived in the community that Sydney knows, and he was actually, he had a little appearance, um, I think about Midway in the book, where like Theo runs into him and he's walking late at night one night and like he's disoriented. It seems like he, he's on drugs and Theo's kind of spooked. He has an interaction with a cop. So flash forward to the ending and they realize what's happening and that he was tested on. Kavan is crying out to his mom and I couldn't help, but, like, I got literal chills because of what happened with George Floyd. And, like, again, the the amount of references that... So, yes, you know, I keep saying this, but it's like, this is real life, guys. Like, yes, things are more theatrical here, but if anyone's crying to their mom, like, or calling... Sorry, if anyone's calling out to their mom, then, yeah, it just... <sighs> it's hard to speak on.
1: Yeah, no, I um, I completely agree. And I actually, I went and looked when, because this book came out in, what, September? I think. Um, yeah. I couldn't remember. E- either way, whether mm-hmm. it was coincidental or purposeful, that's immediately what I thought of when I read it too. And it mm-hmm. was heartbreaking. Right. Heartbreaking, especially because, and Theo, in that scene, he ends up like steering the cops to where Kavan had went. So we know that he's dead and, Yeah, that was just, it was very difficult to read.
0: Right. And I guess just kind of further unpacking that ending, because, I mean, there's a lot going on there. Like, so they're experimenting on the Black people in the neighborhood. I forget, it's like, farm? Not farm. Do you remember the name of the corporation by any chance? Tech. Yes. I I think. Yeah. Yes. So, um... To be honest, I, I want to ask you a little bit because I got kind of confused because I know they it was kind of a commentary on the drug crisis mm-hmm. and how they're kind of using that to push out black people. And so from what I understand, they were testing, they were injecting the black people in the neighborhood with experimental drugs.
1: Yeah. So it seemed like like a they were using it as like a cycle. And I think they mentioned it when they were in that shareholder meeting mm-hmm. of like they're getting research to they're getting money for research to help with the opioid crisis but then also creating opioids so it's like they're perpetuating the problem but then also being paid by the government i believe to find a solution to the problem
0: guys (sighs) okay so as i was reading this book literally i got a notification on my phone a news article there's a company called purdue pharma they're the creators of oxycontin um and the drug oxycodone and they pled guilty to three federal charges, basically from 1999 to 2018, in a population of 450,000 people, a third of those deaths were from prescription opioids. And it was proven that they were paying doctors to write more opioid prescriptions.
1: This is something I feel incredibly, a passion, incredibly passionate about, because it's, it's so funny, because I know when we first started talking about this, you were talking about how your short film, right, was on gentrification? Yes. Yes. And so, and when I was a senior in high school, we had to write a research paper every year, but the research paper I was far and away most proud of was the one I did for my senior year. And it was entire paper and presentation on over-medication in America. And it is a rampant problem. I mean, I was in high school or senior in 2014, the problem, you know, it's only gotten worse. Mm-hmm. And that was a part of what I found in my research is like, doctors are so quick to write pain medications they don't really do further testing to try to figure out the root of the problem you all you have to do is basically go in and say you're in pain and they will write it for you Mm -hmm. there's something called doctor shopping where people will go to multiple doctors for the same prescription and that's how they get it and doctors have started writing these prescriptions for children for (sighs) children i remember i got um i had a tooth surgery when i was in middle school i broke my tooth it was whole thing but anyway after this procedure they prescribed me vicodin I was 13 years old and my mom was like this is unnecessary like I don't even think we filled it and I wasn't even in that bad of pain I think I took two Advil and called it good Mm -hmm. like it's just insane this crisis and so yeah it's just Mm -hmm. something I feel very very strongly about
0: yes and so like this is it feels real and I think that's where the horror comes in like so much of it feels like it could actually happen and even this whole idea of human experimentation, we've actually seen that with, um, the Agent Orange situation in Vietnam and the Tuskegee experiment. So I couldn't remember, like, as I was reading that part, I was like trying to remember what happened. And so I did some research and it's actually on the CDC's website right now. Um, we can even leave the link in our show notes, but in a nutshell, for those who don't know, in 1932, the U.S. Public Health Service treated 600 black men for bad blood, which is basically an umbrella term at the time that included anemia, syphilis, fatigue in Mackin County, Alabama. But the thing is there was no clear informed consent. So 399 men actually had syphilis, 201 men did not. But the thing is through that entire period, it was supposed to be a six month study. It went on for 40 years or decades. Started in 1932. It ended in the 70s. My parents were babies in the 70s. They were alive. This is current history, modern history, guys. So, long story short, um, it was proven around this time, I believe it was like around the 50s, that penicillin was effective in treating syphilis. Not once were any of those men given penicillin. Literally, they were just lab rats. They were injected, pumped with random stuff and This is a quote. We can also link this article in the description as well. But basically, um, I'm just going to read it word for word. They also believe that all black people, regardless of their education, background, economic or personal situations, could not be convinced to get treatment for syphilis. Thus, the USPHS could justify the Tuskegee study, calling it a study in nature rather than an experiment meant to simply observe the natural progression of syphilis within a community that wouldn't seek treatment. So for 40 years, they injected 600 Black men, tested them. They also included their wives and children just as a what-ifs experiment, just to see, like, okay, okay, so let's also unpack that. So their whole premise is that Black people essentially didn't want to go to the doctor. Why is that, I wonder? Mm -hmm. And so this went on for four decades, and in the 70s, they went about their reparations. So the reparations included free medical exams, free meals, burial insurance, and settlement payments, but that doesn't change the fact that they saw human beings and thought, I can test on them just because I can. Yeah,
1: because their their lives mean so little that I can treat them the way I would treat an animal in a facility.
0: Right. And even now we have places in law that you can't do that to animals, you know? And so, um, yeah, that whole, the whole ending, the way that played out, like, yes, it was. And it also kind of was, um, I think you've seen it before. I think we talked about it, the movie, The Hunt. Yeah. Yeah. So in the end of the movie, The Hunt, there's a similar scene where it's like, they're in that, like, um, I forget, like conference room and like all the the big heads are talking. It's very similar to this ending, but I'm just like, the whole situation is not that far-fetched. This yep. was the 70s when they stopped experimenting on human beings.
1: And I feel like that is something that is, you know, when people try to discredit the things that have happened to Black people in this country, that's the first thing that people will say. It was so long ago. It was mm-hmm. so long ago. It really wasn't. It re- Even slavery, it was not. When you think about time in relation to, just this, think about time as a whole. Like- for how long humans have been on this earth, right? If you think back to slavery, it just truly was not that long ago. So it's like, stop trying to belittle it. Stop trying to discredit it by saying, well, oh, that was just so, so long ago. You know, it doesn't matter now. Things are different. It it really wasn't. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like our parents were alive in the seventies. It's Mm -hmm.
0: just. And there's uh... a such thing as, you know, generational trauma. So it's like, we, there's always a cause and an effect, right? So there's the cause, there's the inciting incident, this event, like there's still an effect and it's still an effect. Like, you know, as we've been discussing as this summer and just black existence in America with microaggressions and aggression, aggressions, you know, like, yeah it's a complete misconception. And obviously it's insulting. It's mm-hmm. insulting to say that it's gaslighting to say that and, um, something just kind of on the topic, if you're curious, I'd recommend Googling the term scientific racism. There's a lot of interesting stuff on that that's directly relevant. And so like, again, like it's, while it was kind of, I mean, it was just hard to read, like they're literally, and then there's that whole moment, like you mentioned earlier, where Kelly's like, we can't call the police. Like they they have, it's them, their guns, they're, And their lives on the line and
1: they're even laughing about it when they get into the conference or when they hear them in the conference room and even their private group chat but they're just saying things like oh well is this going to be too big of a scene you know maybe we should ease into it like doesn't matter you know there's always something going on during labor day weekend we control the media we control the police so if we have to um edit the situation or like spin it in our favor it's not a big deal and and they even say something like no one's worried about the people in this neighborhood anyway
0: oh gosh yeah she she just she doesn't miss guys like there's so much details something else that's really interesting in this part is that so there's a little moment where you know of course they they're in the conference room everyone's alerted that they found them in this abandoned hospital and theo is like co conspiracing in essence and on sydney's team so they get caught and they're like test him too and they're like, well, he's not black, and they're like, and it's this, it's literally like, this is in the history, this is real, like this is in the history books. If you were a sympathizer with enslaved people, then you were on that team. You, you're getting the same treatment.
1: Mm-hmm. There's no, way to, there was no way to win because we ourselves couldn't, and the people trying to support us couldn't either. Exactly. You know, it just, and I know we're getting to uh we're over an hour here so I know we we'll are probably be closing out soon but there were just two things that I wanted to reference before we did because I just thought like there are things that stuck out to me. So the first one was when when Josie, Terry and their kid and their dog move in and they're having friends over and I think Sydney's sitting on her front porch and uh one of the friends comments on how nice their house looks now And Josie's like, the houses look nice in spite of the neglect. No amount of ugly Home Depot plants can hide this neglect either. And Sydney's like getting irritated in her head. And Josie's like, all I'm saying is that I can trace my ancestors back to New Amsterdam. I appreciate history. I had to write that down because I'm sorry, we just don't have that luxury. Mm -hmm. Um, Seeing as how we were stolen from a completely separate continent and brought over here to be enslaved yeah a lot of black people don't get to appreciate history in the same way because we were robbed of our history Mm -hmm. and it's like how could you just overlook that and be like well i can trace my my ancestors and i have an appreciation we don't get to do that Mm -hmm. i mean i have people in my family who are like working tirelessly to try to figure out what our history is Mm -hmm. Um, because it's it's not easy. It's not traceable. And so that line just incredibly enraged me.
0: I'm really glad you brought that up because I honestly, like there are times when I was reading this book where I said earlier I had to close it and walk away. And I think I forgot that whole period. But like, just, and the thing is, like, I know that Yes, again, this is fiction, but I know for a fact that there are people who feel that way. And it's so, it's just a complete slap in the face because like, Soraya and I have talked about this off air before, but it's just like, um, a lot of times people ask me, why is your name India? And to be honest, I I couldn't really tell you. I don't know that my parents could tell you. They are just, they're interesting people. That's, yeah. But one thing that my dad did say is our last name is Smith. And so that's one, that's literally one of the most common last names in America. And so he was like, I was just trying to find a way to kind of distinguish you guys a little bit. And so lo and behold, became India Smith. Yeah. So there's this rapper I listened to named Joey Badass. And a couple of years ago, he had an album that came out. And in one of the songs, he was talking about how, like, as Black Americans, we still don't know our real last names. And I just thought about them, like, Smith is not... If, you know, genetically I'm from Africa originally, my whole family is, Smith is in, it's an English name. Right. It's not an African name by nature. And so I'm like, wow, wow.
1: Yeah. I feel like that's something people don't even take a second to think about. We don't get to know our history mm-hmm. in the same way our you know non-Black counterparts do. And that's something really interesting. And um, I just want to touch on this because someone asked me about this and I mentioned it and i'm really realizing this to be true so i don't know if you watched hamilton yet i still haven't seen it i'm gonna
0: i'm gonna watch it i'll watch it today
1: or this weekend we're gonna make sure she watches it guys because it's so good but i mean obviously like everyone has seen hamilton pretty much we all know that it's a full cast of color portraying you know our founding fathers and major historical figures and what i realize is part of why i love hamilton so much aside from it being a brilliant play brilliant musical so, I've always thought history was very interesting. Um, when it comes to, like, favorite subjects in schools, I loved history. I thought it was interesting. I was really corny when someone asked me in high school why I liked it so much. I was like, it's a story that never ends. Cheesy <laughs> as hell, I know. But, um, yes. But I feel like Hamilton... Okay, I don't see myself reflected in the history that we are taught in school. Like, mm. you know, I just don't. There's no one that looks like me. We don't get to know our history. And what I love so much about Hamilton is, although I know these are not what this is not what George Washington looked like, this is not what Alexander Hamilton looked like or Thomas Jefferson. Seeing people of color portray them has, like, given me a new connection to these figures because now for the first time ever I'm seeing people who look like me talking about the history of this country that I live in because, like, I am an American person. You know, I was born in America and an American citizen so, like, American history is, I guess, part of my history. Mm-hmm. and I, I just I hope it's coming off right but it's basically just giving me like this new attachment because because when I think about these historical figures now you know I think of George Washington and I'm thinking of Christopher Jackson or Alexander Hamilton I see Lynn manuel Miranda or Aaron Burr I see Leslie Odom Jr it's people who look like me and so I just I don't know it's kind of like reinvigorated this interest in history and just made me feel like I can finally see myself in it however false you know that may be so just speaking on like us being robbed of our history it made me think of Hamilton like and me realizing that's part of why I've been enjoying it so much
0: I was just gonna say so I have to I have to braid my hair this weekend I will be tuning into <laughs> Hamilton via Disney Plus mark my words this is the proof in the pudding okay we're gonna hold her to that <laughs> but um yeah just um, really quickly like you were saying in high school and in elementary school me going to predominantly white school it was always an issue when it, it was like, okay, time to talk about black people and their trauma, focusing on their trauma, their honestly, trauma. Honestly. And I was like, first, like, ouch, like, cause you know, it was also a bit jarring. Cause I had like, um, I mentioned earlier in the episode, my uncle dad, he was kind of like the family historian. And I was learning a lot about my family, even my Nana, like, my name is super dope, guys. She's so cool. Like, if I could just be, if I could have an ounce of her coolness, I'll be happy. But, like, she would tell me about the cool stuff she was doing in L.A. when she was in her 20s. And I'm like, and that's just, like, you know, not that long ago. But even further in our history, I'm just like, what it like, what were Black, what was, like, a working class Black family, what was their day in the life in 1957? Yeah. Like, don't talk to me about segregation like i just want to know like what games did they play did they play monopoly like what were they doing
1: and we don't get these stories
0: yes we're robbed of that and so in school you know being in a predominantly white school the teachers would make a scene of like pulling me and anyone else who was black and then the class aside being like are you okay with this oh my
1: gosh yes i've had several we were talking (laughs) once about how like the differences between like discipline and like black families or white families and like People just, the teacher was asking. It was just a general discourse on, like, what has been your experience? And mm-hmm. my teacher paused, asked me and the only other Black person in the class, are you guys okay if we
0: talk about this? Ew, what? <sighs> like, what is that, guys? What? That's so, that's, yeah. Mind you, I, just, I was just teeming with anxiety. So this is the last thing I want. I, I mentioned this before, no, like, kidding. attention. <laughs> oh, okay, great. So a class of 40s is now staring daggers at me. Um one teacher who was like she was on the cooler side. She had the decency to at least pull us outside of the class and have this discussion. Of course, everyone was staring daggers as we walked back in. But nevertheless, like, you know, it was all this all this focus on our trauma and that's really commendable with Hamilton. Like I have I've definitely heard about it. I, I while I do while while I have been in a cave in a bubble, like I still, you know, I see Twitter and stuff. I see the memes and in Instagram. So That is definitely commendable. And it's just like, that's not really asking a lot. Because like you said, like, you know, whether like the the fact is born in America, I'm an American citizen, it's our history as well. And we have a right to know. And it sucks that we're robbed of that.
1: Yeah, totally and completely. So yeah. Um, And then I guess the last thing I wanted to say is you hear a lot of the people who are the new people who are coming into this neighborhood, the gentrifiers. Is that a word I'm gonna call it. it's a word now yeah, it's a word now the gentrifiers gentrificators um, they're coming into this neighborhood and you keep hearing them talk about it with each other or with their friends like oh this really hip emerging neighborhood mm. they use that word emerging and it blows my mind because it called to me it calls back the whole concept of cultural appropriation mm-hmm. and how when people steal from another culture and appropriate it they act like because it's new to them that like new to the people stealing it I mean that it's suddenly a new in general and like for example when the Kardashians started wearing cornrows and people are like oh my gosh this is so hip I think like Elle magazine was like this is so trendy look at Khloe Kardashian and her boxer braids <laughs> black women black people have been wearing cornrows since the dawn of time but suddenly because the Kardashians are doing it it's trendy, it's Mm -hmm. new, it's emerging. And so that specific word, I love that Alyssa Cole chose that because Mm -hmm. it's just very appropriate. Just because it is new to you does not mean it is new. Mm -hmm. And just because now you've now deemed it cool and exciting or cool, trendy, exciting, what have you, you do not get to like take ownership of that. And so, yeah, that was something that I had a big problem with. And I was really happy she chose that particular verbiage because I feel like it was appropriate
0: yeah and it just like it completely discounts black people's experiences like i remember being in the seventh grade and i've been wearing braids since i was a baby y'all i'm like i said i'm, I'm gonna the, braid my hair the time. <laughs> yeah it's just it's it's useful if you don't know like as black people it helps us to grow our hair and just experiment with our hair our texture yeah that's just like what i know it's a cultural thing right and i'll never forget like i was filling myself i had got some new braids i had like I have finally got I convinced my parents to get me some new vans I had to have the Jansport backpack because that that's what was popping at the times (laughs) and so I showed up to school and like the school bully if you will (laughs) this is so I, I promise you I'm not making this up this like this literally happened for the purposes of the podcast I'll call him Bill So Bill sees me feeling myself and this is kind of like what we were talking about earlier with this whole idea of a power play. Like he just for, like I was minding my business. I was with my friends and he was like, oh, India, I see you over there looking like Lil Wayne with your dreads, (gasps) with your dreads, pause. (laughs) Like, and I just remember feeling like I got punched because suddenly, again, I don't like attention. All eyes are on me. All of his friends are looking, laughing and like. I think I was like speechless in that moment, and Bear is probably holding back tears. And like, my friends came to my defense, and they were just cussing him out kind of deal. And, um, always looking to knock people a peg down. It's like the power move, putting Mm -hmm. you back in the place they deem you to be in. Like, I was minding my own business. They're not even dreads, first of all, educate yourself. And I'm like, there's so many things wrong with that. Like, I am, I identify with she, her pronouns. I'm a woman. Um, so to compare me to a grown man as I'm like, I don't know, 12, 13, like what is wrong with you? And I know this is learned behavior. I can only imagine what his parents are like. Yeah. So
1: this book, it tackles so much in these 352 pages. Like I I highly recommend it. And, you know, for some people it might be a little bit triggering if these are things that you've said or done before. And I feel like, you know, with the height of the BLM, like I don't want to say like movement because BLM's it's been a movement for years. It's our lives. It's <laughs> our life, yes. And so, but just, you know, with kind of the, what happened over the summer and people starting to do a little bit more self-reflection, I feel like a problem is if you've said or done something in the past, it's okay to learn mm-hmm. and educate, apologize and move on. Like you don't have to stay in your little bubble. And so, while there may be certain things brought up that might make people feel defensive or things that we said that made you feel defensive, just read the book, educate yourself about what gentrification is, what cultural appropriation is, what is happening in the Black community to just try to understand where we're coming from, where this book is coming from. Everyone's trying to like put the defenses down and just actually listen to what Alyssa Cole is saying because I feel like this is a very important book.
0: And I want to just say in doing that, what Saraya just said, we can begin to hopefully move towards a future where we're breaking these generational cycles and starting to move towards you know, some type of growth, some type of positive future for, you know, our kids and the kids, kids and just future generations, because the same thing keeps happening.
1: Yes, it's a cycle. It is a cycle.
0: And um, if you just want to do further research, I mentioned this earlier, but you can Google the term scientific racism. I'd also recommend eminent domain that comes up. I also studied a lot of that when I was making my short film my junior year. And also the term redlining is yes, relevant.
1: Yes. And we're going to have a few resources in the show notes because, like, I do think there, there's definitely some education that needs to be had here. And so we'll have some resources you can click on, learn, read the book, please, oh, please. And we will see you for our next episode.
0: Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us today. For more updates, you can be sure to follow us on Twitter at BookSolidPod. On Instagram at Booksolid Podcast. Like us on Facebook at Booksolid Podcast and also join our group.